Welcome to Think Change, the podcast from ODI, where we invite leading experts and analysts to discuss some of the world's most pressing challenges. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. This is our third and final episode of the special mini-series we've released around COP27. COP27, of course, is the UN climate conference that just took place in Egypt. In our previous two episodes, we explored the thorny issue of the fossil fuel transition and heard from small island states about the urgent need for loss and damage financing. Since then, we've actually seen some mixed results from the negotiations on these issues, but we've also seen a marked shift in the debate from a focus on mitigation to a focus on adaptation. But there is an important gap that remains, uh, and that's the gap for countries that are affected by conflict. We've done a lot of research on this uh, at ODI, and it has shown that more than half of the 25 countries which are most vulnerable to climate change are also affected by conflict. And yet these groups remain largely excluded from accessing financing from climate adaptation. In fact, the more unstable a state, the less climate financing receives. COP27 ended with the launch of a new loss and damage fund. This is a fund that is meant to provide financial assistance to low and middle income nations that are stricken by climate-related disasters. But we know that this money is unlikely to reach fragile communities in areas that are affected by conflict. And supporting conflict-affected states to adapt to climate change is actually not just about money. It's about using the existing resources more effectively. And above all, it's about raising the political will to deal with these complex risks. So I've invited our speakers today to reflect a little on the unique challenges that countries affected by conflict are facing when it comes to climate change adaptation. We will discuss how to fund, how to plan, how to deliver interventions that can better support communities in this context. I've invited one expert from ODI to speak with me today, along with leading voices on climate change adaptation. I'm truly delighted to introduce His Excellency Abdurrahman Abdishakur. He is the Special Envoy for Humanitarian and Drug Response in Somalia. Welcome, Your Excellency. Thank you for having me. We also have Robert Mardini. Robert is the Director General of the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And last but not least, our own Rebecca Nadin. She is the Director for the Global Risk and Resilience Program here at ODI. Welcome, Rebecca. And thanks, Sarah. Your Excellency, let me start with you. Um, we're all aware that the Horn of Africa is currently experiencing its worst drought in 40 years. Um, the drought is having a particularly deadly effect on Somalia. And so, you know, reducing the vulnerabilities that climate change induces for the poorest communities is obviously a key goal for the Somali government. How do you think we can move away from just responding to food crisis? You know, this, you know, in the previous episode, we talked about this sticking plaster, you know, everything that we do just after the crisis happens and really find ways to invest more, you know, in long-term structural resilience to complex climate risk. I mean, can this climate adaptation finance play a role in this shift? Uh, thank you for, very much, Sarah, for having me, and, and thanks other colleagues. Uh, really, uh, as you said, Horn Africa is experiencing a devastating drought, especially in Somalia, where the drought is affecting 8 million people, 
300,000 of that 8 million hundred people are at the risk of the falling into the famine. 1.8 million are under the age of the five are also facing acute malnutrition. Uh, we are now in the midst of the fifth failed rainy season with even a possible sixth one expected to fail for next March. The need of vulnerable people across the country are escalating fast. And that is the causes of a climate change. Although Somalia is little contributed to the global emission, it has dealing uh, with the dire consequences of the, of the climate crisis for decades. Uh, since 1991, Somalia experienced 31 droughts, floods, and other climate events. That is three times the number experienced between 1970 and 1990. And we can have access to climate adaptation finance because of the complexities involved. Uh, and you see, Somalia also is ranked one of the 71 out of 79 in low to lower middle income countries in terms of funding approved by multilateral climate funds. The average time frame from submitting a project proposal to receiving funding is, is over almost five years. This needs to be changed. We need a financial mechanism and resource allocation criteria that are simplified and fit for the context of the conflicts. This will improve Somalia's chance to have access funding for adaptation program and allow more local actors in Somalia to independently access the climate uh, financing. Unless we change the the criteria, unless we change the complexity and conditions that surround us to having access to climate adaptation fund, we can have we can have that access, uh, and we cannot improve uh, about coping that climate uh, crisis. We as Somalia and federal government of Somalia as well want is to deal with the climate reality, which means to invest the resilience of, and build the resilience of our communities to mitigate the fallout of climate crisis and also to adapt to the extreme weather caused by climate change. But we can because of that condition is surrounded to the uh, climate financing funding, particularly the adaptation and other uh, and, and, and climate financing uh, and mechanism. Well, thank you very much, Rexin. That's such a, a compelling um, account of the challenges of, you know, having access to the money, even when it's put on the table. Uh, we, I'll come back later um, in the discussion to in, with Rebecca and others to unpack how we can simplify these mechanisms, you know, to make sure that those who need it the most can really um, access the financing that is put on the table. But Robert, I also wanted to bring, you know, a, a perspective of what it is on the ground, you know, to try and work with both the pressures of climate change and on, you know, conflict. Um, obviously, the ICRC works in a lot of African countries that are affected both by conflict and climate change. And, and that, you know, raises particularly tricky issues in terms of integrating, um, the two, um, agendas, even though the pressures for people are the same on the ground. 
What what's the SRC experience? Um, you know, what do you think we can do to make sure that we advance, you know, the response to both pressures at the same time? Thank you, Sarah. Uh, and indeed, I'm also building on what His Excellency mentioned because uh, many of the elements he he shared really resonate from an ICRC practitioner uh, point of view. And you said it in your introduction, Sarah, of the 25 countries which are the most vulnerable to climate change, more that, than half are affected by armed conflict. So our experience at ICRC um, is very much that uh, people and communities affected uh, by armed conflict, many of them being protracted armed conflict, are also uh, the same people being hit hardest by the uh, extreme weather event, the, the climate shocks. And what we see is uh, the, the, the toxic combination between armed conflict and climate change is eroding uh, their ability to absorb those repeated shocks. And when you speak with people and communities, uh, it, it becomes harder to distinguish of what is the trigger of their displacement. Is it the conflict, uh, the armed violence, or is it uh, repeated droughts, uh, but the, the, the effects are very much the same, and uh, uh, they are uh, really in, a, in, in harm's way in so many respects. So, of course, uh, adapted climate action in conflict settings is absolutely critical uh, to reduce humanitarian needs in the first place, to avoid being the firefighters, uh, to try as much as possible to preserve development gains uh, where those were achieved and avoid systemic breakdown and lasting fragility. Um, I, I have seen for myself what the double vulnerability of climate uh, and conflict really means for people in places like uh, uh, the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, um, uh, South Sudan, but also places like Afghanistan and Yemen, where you see uh, repeated uh, droughts uh, that are uh, more extreme every time. Uh, the ICRC and other humanitarian actors have uh, a, a part to play in really enabling climate action in these places, generally uh, by trying to ensure that our humanitarian response really take into account uh, climate shocks and contribute towards longer term and broader adaptation goals. So, so in several countries, maybe uh, in the Sahel, including in Mali and Niger, we helped uh, and we are helping farmers and herders cope with increasing variability uh, in rainfall and periods of water scarcity by supporting uh, the rehabilitation of irrigation schemes and the production of animal feed or seed and its storage in community-managed uh, silos uh, in rural areas of the Central African Republic, uh, where shallow wells are increasingly drying up uh, during the dry season. We have switched to drilling boreholes into deeper aquifers without, of course, exceeding their sustainable yield, rather than digging uh, new wells. Uh, and we are using more and more solar uh, water systems uh, in, in many contexts in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, uh, and, and helping farmers really pivot to uh, drip irrigation techniques uh, whenever possible. Uh, and hopefully uh, these actions um, help people to cope better with the growing climate risks. Uh, the challenge, of course, now is to find uh, concrete ways to take these solutions to scale. And I think this is the big wicked problem that we need to, uh, to solve uh, and to ensure really that uh, in the long run, our action uh, is in the right, uh, is, is going in the right direction. We need to make sure that we are not 
overutilizing some resources uh, that we are not increasing the poverty gap by supporting landowners and not those who are landless uh, and so on and so forth. Thanks, Robert. Rebecca, Robert has made a very compelling case for the importance of investing in climate adaptation to avoid systemic breakdown. But we've also heard from His Excellency about how difficult it is to access climate finance, particularly in conflict-affected states, because they have all kinds of other pressures that really impede the ability to engage with such cumbersome mechanisms. So what are some first steps to make climate finance more accessible in these countries? And thanks, Sarah. Um, Absolutely. I mean, in the last few years, there have indeed been a lot of discussion about how to improve access to finance for fragile and conflict-affected states. As we heard from His Excellency, what we really need now is action. Um, And this is why at COP27, ODI and our partners like ICRC and and countries um, such as Somalia really, really push the message that the current mechanisms for climate finance are characterized by this low risk appetite and these cumbersome and inflexible requirements. They're just not working in the conflict um, settings. Um, and, and His Excellency also really noted this challenge with access. And, and we know actually that you know, the Green Climate Fund, the GCF investments, for example, in LDC countries are really not offering incentives um, to accredited agent entities to work in LDCs that pose what they call high risks for public project implementation. Um, so the GCF primarily funds at the moment these low risk projects and actually has um, a lack of conflict sensitivity in its programming requirements. So what we can really clearly see is at the moment, the risk of not acting is not being sufficiently factored into GCS funding decisions, despite the severe financial and human humanitarian consequences of not doing so. So ODI is a think tank. We know that we cannot call for a paradigm in shift in thinking without evidence. So in October this year, we co-produced with ICRC, Mercy Corps, um, WFP and others, a report called Embracing Discomfort, a call to enable finance for climate change adaptation in conflict settings. And in that report, what we were trying to do and what we were trying to do um, at COP27 was put forward some initial steps um, that, um, that, that we could be taking. So firstly, Really, it is about we must approach risk differently if we're going to enable climate change adaptation in in places affected by conflict. So this means that banks, donors and climate funds have really got to embrace um, those higher risk projects and not shy away um, from areas which which lack rigorous um, and and systemized data, which is just you know, true for many of the conflict affected areas. But of course, you know, that is easier said than done. So we need to better understand um, how those risks um, can be underwritten. But there are examples out there of of donors and organisations who are being more flexible. So for example, AFD's um, Minka Fund, um, that's designed for crisis and conflict situations, which is allowing um, programming changes to be made in the event of crisis and applies different due diligence requirements um, based on on the funding bracket um, required. So these flexibility of such models actually could be applied through specific funding windows for climate adaptation. 
Secondly, um, we've really got to be encouraging large scale climate finance, but not lose focus of the equally important local and small scale adaptation. So by that, I mean, this should include supporting local and national NGOs to access finance, um, as these organisations are the one that are often um, on the ground. And then finally, also, we've really got to be thinking about how to in- address the structural divisions and employ our expertise across sectors. I mean, we he- we just we heard from Robert, you know, we really need to be combining the experience of humanitarians who operate in unstable areas with the ability um, of those climate and de- development actors to create these these solutions, these tailored long-term adaptation solutions. I mean, and currently, as we know, um, this work is really um, rather siloed. But if we can establish new partnerships across sectors and channel um, financing through some not of these non-traditional mechanisms, then I think we can move towards um, more informed action. But my final point, and, and this is perhaps one of the most important, is that the solution lies in more than just money. It really is about political willpower to achieve this. So this isn't just a question for governments. It's up to the banks to start to work on integrated climate and conflict policies and to all of us actually um, in the development arena to really endorse um, and use um, some of these these recommendations or or these these first steps um, in our own work. Absolutely, Rebecca. I actually think that breaking the silos is really going to be critical. Uh, And that is going to be part of the discomfort that we need to embrace to make sure that climate action becomes more appropriate and more powerful. We're recording this episode one week after the end of COP27. Um, The conference had many challenges, but it's also seen some important new outcomes. I mentioned the new fund on loss and damage, um, and there were also some important conversations about the role that international financial institutions like the World Bank, like the IMF, um, can play in funding climate change mitigation and adaptation. We also saw breakthroughs in terms of operationalizing the Santiago Network for Loss and Damage um, that's supposed to scale up technical assistance to low and middle income countries, you know, particularly those who are very vulnerable to the effects of climate change. But it would be really interesting to hear the assessment for the perspective of Somalia, Your Excellency. What do you think the outcomes of COP27 will mean for your country? Uh, it means good news uh, in terms of announcing it and 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 and, and, and declaring and agreeing upon on uh, uh, loss and damage is is welcome. But I am in a country where drought and floods has become frequent and more severe alongside other environmental impacts uh, like uh, rising seas for coastal communities, increasing. Uh, desertification, the the carbon capacity of Somalis and, and its environmental has become more fragile. Uh, the current drought alone has displaced more than over one million people. Flooding in 2011 similarly devastating more than 900 and, and, and uh, similar with more than 900,000 people displaced. Both. Events created new displacement and worsened condition for already vulnerable IDPs. Somalia, we have 2.9 million people displaced by the by the drought and, and flood, which is a 
caused by the climate change. And I am not uh, really, as, uh, and you don't surprise if I say that Somalia is the most urbanized country in Africa. We are losing uh, our rural communities. 70% uh, of our uh, production uh, uh, and, 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 uh, has been reduced, our production has been reduced to 70%, and we lost more than 4 million livestock due to the climate uh, uh, and a crisis. And, and a country like that have to welcome that loss and damage and, 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 and announcement. But how we can put into the practice where that uh, countries like Somalia can have access uh, to it. Globally, the most fragile states, including Somalia, have the clearest need for climate resilience, yet per person, they receive one to 80 of the climate finance that follows to non-fragile uh, states. So we need how the fragile state like Somalia, which is uh, now facing the threat of, of terrorist group. Yes, there is a, a lot of displaced people by the conflict, by the terrorist conflict. But Somalia, you have more than 1 million people who were displaced by the drought. And I'm very happy to hear uh, from ICRC uh, director that the humanitarian community now agreed to uh, in, in inserted the uh, uh, program is for for adaptation. That's 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 a good news. But we want to put itself to be put into the practice. Uh, in my country, also we have the problem of that. The humanitarian community and and development partners are not talking to each other. They are not coordinated, and humanitarian community are focusing only life saving efforts, which is which is absolutely a noble work. But at the same time, we want to how we can prevent the recurrent of the drought. If we want to prevent the drought, we have to invest resilience. That amount of humanitarian funding, some of it has to go into the resilience in order to have mechanism to cope that reality. And we also welcome the, the agreement of loss and damage, but also absolutely we want to be more flexible uh, mechanism and structure that we can take the advantage, not only for the government, civil society and, and the private sector also have an important role to play in mobilizing resource and collective action to adapt it to the climate change. The climate is a reality and it's a threat and it is threat to us as a fragile state and to the global. Absolutely. It is a global threat. But of course, you feel the impact so much more directly because you know that the challenges are amplified and multiplied. Um, Robert, I would be interested to hear your take on the outcomes of COP27. Do you think it's enough to make a difference? Uh, well, thank you, Sarah. Um, well, I think uh, it's no breaking news to anyone that uh, on the mitigation front, uh, COP27 under-delivered and maybe on the adaptation fund, uh, the good news, as His Excellency mentioned earlier, is this uh, decision to establish a fund on loss and damage. And I think this gives a pathway to now uh, uh, clarify uh, the fund, uh, who are uh, the states who are going to contribute to the fund and who are the recipients. And, uh, uh, and it's absolutely... Uh, important, and we had basically one key message in COP27, uh, which really resonates in in the uh, in the paper, the policy brief that we 
uh, we co-created with ODI, Mercy Corps, uh, UNHCR, WFP, IGVA, and uh, the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center. Uh, it's uh, one key message, which is, um, uh, you know, climate fund and climate funds should flow into the most difficult places. And uh, here's a big contradiction today. Um, and, and of course, humanitarian players will continue to optimize, to integrate climate risk in their response, to uh, pivot from uh, pure traditional humanitarian response to more you know, resilient projects building on the resilience of communities. But let's face it, humanitarians alone clearly cannot provide all the necessary support for communities to adapt to, to growing climate risk. This is why, uh, in addition to adapting our own work and pushing the humanitarian sector to adapt, we have been mobilizing others to steer and scale up responses. I mean, all development agencies and the institutional financial uh, uh, international financial institutions uh, have uh, developed very um, ambitious uh, fragility uh, strategies uh, uh, under the heading leaving no one behind. And uh, now these strategies should deliver for the most vulnerable. So uh, these strategies should deliver precisely to those places at the intersection of conflict and climate. And uh, this comes back to the point uh, Rebecca mentioned in um, one of the key findings and recommendation of the uh, of embracing discomfort, which is uh, re reviewing the appetite uh, to risk and risk sharing, uh, uh, and also consider the price of not. Uh, investing in those fragile uh, places. We need really a comprehensive response that marshals the different expertise, access, and experience of humanitarian development, climate, and other actors, uh, and that does not automatically exclude fragile places from climate action because it is uh, complicated and risky to work there. And today, this is the conundrum we need to overcome uh, collectively. It will remain uh, a big challenge, uh, in part because humanitarian development and climate responses, uh, despite all good intentions, uh, as uh, mentioned by Rebecca and His Excellency, remained and remain siloed. Uh, we are working really to break these silos. Um, uh, we know that uh, the communities who need uh, our support do not recognize this division. It is not relevant to them. And we know that these divisions hinder action uh, when experts in conflict and experts in climate adaptation uh, are not talking to each other or are simply unfamiliar with one another constraints and, and the modalities of work. So more needs to be done uh, to enable stronger, stronger collaborative or complementary response and to address really risk adversity um, uh, and, and currently uh, comes in, in the way of adequate responses in fragile and conflict-affected settings. So, so we, we really, the, the key message also of this uh, publication is we encourage decision makers to consider the risk and the price tag of not supporting climate action in those difficult places. Uh, yes, as you said, one thing that remains to be done is to figure out who is going to contribute to the fund and who will receive the money. And I want to pick up on that because at COP27, we heard the chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, Gaston Brown, call on countries like India and China to pay climate compensation alongside other major polluters. 
Um, and that's a big turnaround from previous years. Um, so Rebecca, you're a China specialist. I'd be really interested to hear what China's response to this request is um, and where they see their role in the international climate sphere. It's important to get more countries to contribute and to make sure that the countries who need to receive the money have sizable resources. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, um, China has been very sort of clear on its position. I mean, China's special envoy, uh, Xie Jinhua, um, at this COP and previous COPs has been very clear about positioning itself as the champion of the of the developing world. So as really being a voice for the G77 plus. Um, so China's trying to balance itself as the champion of the developing world alongside its position as the world's second largest emitter. Um, so this is this is this is a challenge. Xie was was very supportive of, of the fund. China was, you know, absolutely it, it's really important that um such a fund um is developed. And you know, China said it it would contribute, but actually, when one digs a little bit deeper into um, what that actually means, um, the Chinese state media was quite clear that this contribution would be much more in the terms of technical assistance um, rather than rather than cash. So, China was really reinforcing its message that. Any funding that goes into this fund should be in line with the um, principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. Um, China emphasizes um, this a lot. Um, and the Chinese state media also was picking up on the point that, okay, China is you know, a major emitter, but actually um, those emissions can be attributed to um, other nations outsourcing their pollution or their manufacturing um, to China to produce um, those goods. But clearly, you know, there's there is increasing pressure um, on China to contribute, um, and as as you note, India as well. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, so thank you very much, Rebecca, Your Excellency Abdi Shakur, uh, Robert, for bringing to life this discussion and giving us, you know, so many insights to reflect on how we can make sure that countries affected by conflict can better access climate finance. We've heard very vividly about the impact that climate change is having on Somalia, uh, is having on the Sahel, is having on other vulnerable countries that are also affected by conflict. And so I think it's really critical that we make sure that the commitments made at COP27 don't get lost in technocratic silos and that climate funds finally really flow into the most difficult places. Thank you to our audience for listening to today's episode. As always, the research and all the resources that we have referred to in this episode will be available in the show notes. We hope you will join us again for the next episode. And if you enjoy the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.